pretty face. Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20. I'll be reading Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 32. Acts 20, 29 through 32. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word through his apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, as you moved upon Paul's heart to say those words to those elders, cause all of us here with the appropriate same kind of disposition and spirit working within us, hear the gravity and the beauty and the joy causing of these words to us. So therefore help me as a pastor, as a teacher, to be clear, to be honest with the text before us, to the glory of your name to the joy of our hearts, our lives, to the salvation of our souls through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's the the bottom line question that our passage, I think, raises, and I want us to hear and think about it underneath these next 45, 50 minutes, and that's this. Is it loving for preachers, for church leaders, to call into question teaching and teachings from professing evangelical Christians that may be false and dangerous? Or let me just, let me just reword the question in a different way. Shouldn't pastors only be positive And never go on the offensive against other professing Christians and the things they write, the things that they post on the internet, or the things that they say in a Bible study in a local church. Here's the questions. Here's the answer. Here's my answer. Our text is a call for pastors in this church, elders in this church, and in every church that is faithful to Jesus, the leaders are called to look out for twisted theological teachings in order to protect the church, the flock, Christ's people. And therefore, no elder, no preaching pastor is doing his job if he is not willing to stand for clear biblical 
truth over against clear error. Think about this, what we just read. If, if Paul is correct, and, and teachers are likened to, with his metaphor, fierce, savage wolves that do not spare Jesus' flock. If that's true, then we certainly are not loving God's people if we fail to warn them about specific false teachers and teachings that may destroy their souls. Just, just one, one quick, quick example. About 15 years ago, within American evangelicalism, in evangelicalism, there was a movement that, that was gaining more and more momentum called the emerging church. And there are people, not everyone agreed on different stuff, but there were some within the, that movement that were saying things, not clearly, but you can hear where it was going, of ultimate denial, of clear, central biblical doctrine, which later did come out as it always does. But, for instance, there was one of these leaders who said about the atonement of Jesus. You don't get much more central than that. The atonement of Christ, as it has been traditionally understood and is exegetically faithful to what the New Testament gives us, he called Jesus' propitiation turning away the wrath of God by absorbing God's wrath against him, he called that teaching, as a so-called Christian leader, cosmic child abuse. And so I came against the name, the person, and the teaching very strongly because it was a, an attack by a wolf in pastor's clothing. And it is no gospel at all. So that was an issue that was not an issue. Uh, can't we just agree to disagree as Christians? It wasn't one of those. There are all kinds of those. And we're wise to make the distinction between those. But, but every decade constantly sees within the church world new movements that claim to be culturally relevant, but they're spreading anti-Christian doctrine. And th this, this is the history of the church. It's always the danger for all of us as Christians in churches. As the culture goes, as the culture changes on issues, with it, a percentage of Christian leaders will bow to the culture. And they will claim, we, the church of Jesus, for all these centuries, have misinterpreted the Bible on issue X or Y or Z. In every decade, in every age, the shepherds of God's flock must make sure First and foremost, as we saw last week, watch yourselves, do not become a wolf. But instead, be ready to fight against false teaching. So, in our text, there are two major 
points. And so those are the two major points of this sermon. The first is this. Shepherds are to guard the flock against false teachers and teaching. Secondly, we'll see, they do this by knowing the truth of the gospel of God's grace, the word of His grace, knowing it so well that they can smell error miles away and wolves as they enter. Okay. Now, so what I want to do first, because this is the third week in Paul, I think it's the third week in Paul's speech here to the elders. I just want to coalesce that very briefly by reading to you my paraphrase of where we've been and how it incorporates this morning. So here's Paul. Here's my paraphrase. Paul's saying to them, I am your example, elders, because I did not shrink from preaching to you the whole counsel of God, the complete and, and the clear gospel of salvation from beginning to end. And in light of that, therefore, I charge you shepherds to guard closely the flock of Christian sheep. That is Jesus' sheep that He purchased with His own blood. Guard them from the inevitable fierce wolves that will come into the church to destroy the souls of the sheep by their Twisted. Oh, not, not complete untruths. Truth. And they'll twist it. They're misrepresenting the gospel of God's grace. And so guard the flock by warning against false teachers in teaching. Okay. So that means, first of all, therefore, Elders better know, better have a firm grasp on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ in order to know when false teaching is false teaching. In other words, elders must be knowledgeable of the central core doctrines of the faith in order to know what teachings go outside the line. Of that. They must know which truths are essential to Christian faith and which issues allow for Christians, genuine Christians, faithful Christians, to differ on. And there's a difference. And so the starting ground for this protection of the flock is to understand the central doctrinal debates over church history that have been resolved in the ecumenical church councils beginning in the 300s. Now, I'm going to mention the first one. That is not necessarily spelled out that way, but it certainly is assumed. And so let me give you an example of what I mean by these doctrines. Here's the core. First, the Bible. The inspiration of Holy Scripture that is God's word and final authority for all faith practice. 
Secondly, is the nature of God Himself. He is omniscient, He is omnipotent, and He is a trinity. To deny the clear teaching of Scripture on God, who is a holy trinity, one nature, three persons, is outside the bounds, and those who do it are wolves. Next would be the person in the work of Christ Himself. His full deity. Not half divine. Fully divine. And His full humanity. One person. Two distinct natures. And Christ's substitutionary atonement where the wrath of God against all the sins of those who will be saved were poured out in punishing Him. Jesus' bodily resurrection, His ascension into heaven, His sure second coming one day in His resurrection body to raise from the dead all those who belong to Him and to enact a judgment upon all who are left in sin. And that this message of Jesus Christ saves undeserving sinners by grace alone. Through faith, their belief, trust in it alone, apart from any of their meritorious works. Shepherd. That's the starting ground and the core are to watch out for wolves. Protect the flock. Pastors, teachers who twist these truths are dangerous, destructive wolves devouring sheep and bloodying them. You ever seen the movie The Gray? There's a good... If you haven't, I don't know, it's kind of like a horror flick. All right, you'll see wolves. Honey, I think just you and I saw that movie. Now, I want you to notice something else here. The Apostle Paul doesn't just criticize the teachings of these people that he has in mind. He points to their hearts. He points to their Deep, sinful motives. False teaching to the Apostle Paul on the level that we're talking about is a moral issue. He calls them, oh, they just kind of got it wrong. Trust me, he's had debates with a lot of these guys and they're not moving. He calls them fierce wolves. New American Standard calls them, how does it say it? Who has New American? Vicious or something like that. They open their mouths. This is how they are wolves. They talk. They speak. They write. And that's being a wolf because of what they speak. 
They stand in positions of an authoritative teacher. And Paul says they speak twisted things. Now, the New American says they're perverse things. And, and the NIV accurately paraphrases it, saying, they will distort the truth. So again, the way you poison a dog is not just to feed him poison. You put it into the food he likes. There is a lot of truth coming out of false teachers today. A lot. And that's why it's dangerous. Because mixed in with it are some deadly truths. Paul says they will take truth and twist. Quick. And he dealt with it throughout his ministry with these kinds of people. They will take verses from the Bible and tweak them out of context and many vulnerable sheep will be persuaded. These kinds of false teachers are masters at, at taking something that's true and then stretching it to a point that now it has become a deadly poison of untruth. You do know Jesus said on a few occasions in the gospel after someone's physical healing, your faith made you well. Therefore, don't you understand? Jesus went to the cross to die for every ailment. Therefore, everyone in this room or in this world who has cancer or is a quadriplegic or is blind, every one of them can be healed. It's not up to God. It's up to you now. Is your faith strong enough? That's how it works. And Paul says that behind their teaching is a selfish motive. I'm not as bold as Paul. I get nervous going to people's motives, okay? I really check myself a lot, okay? Because we don't like it when other people do it to us, and we just might be wrong, but, you know, come on. Paul goes to motive. Let's read again verse 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, and then he adds this, to draw away disciples after them. They want to get a following, according to Paul, for themselves. Not for Christ. Pride is at the root of all heresy. Okay, just quickly. Because someone differs with you on the mode of baptism, or, or whether the gifts of the Spirit are for today or not, and we can go on and on and on and on about those issues. Just because they differ doesn't make them a heretic. Heresy is a very technical historical term. They differ from the council of Chalcedon and Nicaea and Ephesus. And they're heretics. 
You ask me later about that stuff. But pride, according to Paul, is at the root because a false teacher to Paul has not humbled his heart before God. He's more interested in getting people to cling to him than in being faithful to the word of God and Holy Scripture and then through the apostles of Jesus himself handed down. A desire for faithfulness to Christ. Deep down desire. It leads to a pure and straightforward handling of the Scriptures which always exalt Jesus Christ and not ourselves. I want, I want you to turn for a minute to hear from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <coughs> because as Paul tells these elders, again, he's not speaking in a vacuum. He's speaking of a constant experience in wolves entering the churches. And so when he writes this, here's a taste of it as he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll pick up at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. That just means very, very skillfully deceiving people. He says we refuse to do that or to tamper with God's word. Now, okay, why is he saying that? He has particular human beings he has run into and knows many of them by name and what they're doing. In the guise of Christianity, these words he writes do not come out of a vacuum. He is accusing them of doing just that. Or as he says to the elders in our passage, fierce wolves. But so watch, Paul goes on. Okay, we don't tamper with the Scripture. We're honest with it. And we present it as is. And he goes on. And even... If our gospel is veiled, now this is where Paul's going to accuse them of wanting to have followers, remember. They're looking to seek for people to follow them. It's not that Paul doesn't plant churches and people say, Paul, you're great. But, but see, he's willing to abandon it all instead of try to get those people to come to him by his denying of the truth. Of the gospel. So that's why he goes on to say, and so even if our, our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what listen to him, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. These fierce wolves seeking to draw the disciples. After them, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So with Paul, it's not merely got it wrong, the persistent teaching 
of heretical, dangerous, soul-killing truths. It is a matter of their heart and pride. And thus they desire to twist Scripture in order to get followers. Now listen to how Paul deals with heretics. This is what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 19-20. Paul's laying out to Timothy saying, when it comes to pastors, it comes to elders, we are to be those who are holding faith and a good conscience. And then he says this, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. And Paul lets us know that the danger to these men here does not just come from the outside, but wolves invading the church, but rises up within. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Being a wolf is not a matter of outward appearance. Uh, There's a wolf. Doesn't look like a wolf. Being a wolf is a matter of the heart. Wolves may be the kind of person and often are where many people will say of them, he has a pastor's heart. Oh, he's so kind. And I feel so good when I'm around him. That's why Jesus warned in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they're ravenous wolves. That's why Jesus' mouthpiece, Paul, said about many of these quote-unquote Christian preachers, they, like their master, Satan, appear as angels of light. Satan does. So do they. Angels. Not demons. Of light. And, and he goes on to say, oh, they appear as servants of righteousness. And then he says, but their end will be according to their deeds. their wolf ministries. And so, what I want to do before I'm going to move on. Yes, I've mentioned particular foundational doctrines where there's no compromise. This is why so many of us believers in different denominations, different views of water baptism, different views of the gifts of the Spirit, even different views on some really important stuff 
okay, like divine election. Is it unconditional? Is it not unconditional? We embrace each other because we can see in each other true faith, faith in Christ. But see, one thing we all have in common is we're all agreeing on those things that I just mentioned. Okay. Now, but I want to get, I want to, I want to read something to you from John Piper. Because, because I just, I just, because it's so good. I want to commend it because more than just looking at particular doctrines, there's, this is, I just hope that, let me just read it. Hope this is helpful to you. And Piper, he says, quote, let me just mention one feature to watch out for in the recognition of wolves. As I have watched the movement from biblical faithfulness to liberalism in persons and in institutions, seminaries, denominations, etc. As I have watched this movement in persons and in institutions that I have known over the years, this feature stands out. An emotional disenchantment with faithfulness to what is old and fixed. And an emotional preoccupation with what is new or fashionable or relevant in the eyes of the world. Let's try to say it another way. When this feature is prevalent, you don't get the impression that person really longs to bring his mind and heart into conformity to fixed biblical truth. Instead, you see the desire to picture biblical truth is unfixed. It's fluid, indefinable, distant, inaccessible. And so, it's open to the trends of the day. He goes on. So what marks a possible wolf in the making is not simply that he rejects or accepts any particular biblical truth, but that he is not deeply oriented on the Bible. He is more oriented on experience. He isn't captured by the, the great old faith once for all delivered to the saints. Instead, he's enamored by what is new and innovative. Yes, a good elder can be creative, but the indispensable mark when it comes to doctrinal fitness and faithfulness to what is, it is, it is faithfulness to what is fixed in Scripture. Disciplined, humble submission to the particular affirmations of the Bible. Carefully and reverently studied and explained and cherished. When that spirit begins to go, there is a wolf in the making. End quote. And so let me say this one other thing about the job of elders, pastors, that aspect of the job of protecting from wolves, it's this. That does not just mean Bible-thumping negativity, coming against false teaching as if you're just spitting it out of a computer. Wrong. This is good, right? That's not what it is. But according to this text, it's a heartfelt 
love for Christ and for the glory of God and for the salvation of the sheep that drives the protective disposition of elders. It's right there in verse 31. Therefore, be alert. And now he puts himself forward as an example of this. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish, meaning to warn you, warn you, pointing out false doctrines and warning you and showing you the true so you taste it and love it, warning you with tears, with tears of care and concern for all of you. Elders and the congregations in Ephesus. He says, that's why I admonished. That's why I warned you against this danger over and over and over again with a heart. With heartfelt tears. So that's the first major point. Elders are to protect the flock with a heart a broken heart of tears. And then the second and last major point is that shepherds do this not by studying and spending all their time and studying error. Well, you got to do that to say what is a person saying to an extent. But it is by knowing the truth, knowing the gospel so well. There's a wolf about... He might be miles away, but I can smell him. I can smell him. I can smell it. Because you know the truth. It's like the banker or the teller at the bank. How they're, how they're trained to handle the $100 bills over and over and over and over and over and over and over. They know it. And then they're given one that's a counterfeit. Something's not right. To know the truth so well. Verse 32, it's right there. And so now, I commend you to God first. And I commend you to the word of His grace. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, two things here. Paul says, I'm never going to see your face again. This is a sad moment this way. Now I'm just commending you. I'm committing you first to God. Okay. That's so important in Paul's mind. Again, you're not just Bible-thumping theologians. This is a God issue, not just for the sheep, but particularly, as we saw last week, for you, shepherds. I'm committing you there, so go to God. What does that mean? I, I think it really means this. It, it is, I've been around long enough to know that you can study Scripture and theology and historical theology, and you can know a lot of stuff. Paul knows this too. 
But first, elders are to know that they are children of God who by the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, and live that way and continually go back again and again that way. Now, when you think about it, see, what I mean is this. Let me picture it for you in the New Testament. Here's Paul saying, doctrine is extremely important, men. Don't put up with wolves. Okay. 30 years later, on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus gave John a vision. And through that vision, Jesus wrote a note to this church. And this is what he said to them. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. They're doing this well. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. They're doing what he said. I know you are enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake. Yes. And you haven't grown weary. You keep at it. And then this line. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. It is possible to be theologically correct. To be a great Bible exegete. To be, to be diligent to correct the false teachers in the church world today. To guard the flock from error, but at the same time have a prideful, calloused heart towards God and lose your first love for Jesus and in your soul and against your sin on a regular basis. For elders and for all of us Christians, Accurate biblical interpretation and correct theology is not the goal. The goal is worship. Repentance is worship. Trust in promises is worship. The brokenness David talks about, contrite heart, is worship. Singing, maybe, if your heart's in, worship. Obedience is worship. It is worship and satisfaction and joy in God. God is the goal. Through the truth. Through the truth of the gospel. The truth of the scripture. And to not turn those around is really important. And both have to be there. As Jesus said. Now it's not, it's not working this way, young lady. There's a day. When true worshipers of God, after I die on a cross, send the Spirit, the Jew and Gentile and Samaritan, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth.
biblical theology, accurate biblical theology, getting your theology right on the doctrine of God, the Scripture, the Holy Trinity, justification by faith alone, the atonement, divine election, all, all sound doctrine is not the goal. It's not the end. It's crucial. It's the crucial bridge to the island of true worship and joy in God. And so Paul says, I first I commend you guys to God. To God. And then secondly, I commend you to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance that's promised among all those who have been separated unto Christ. Sanctified, that's what he means. But first, so think about the words. What does Paul mean when he says the word of his grace? I don't know any other option other than to say he doesn't mean anything different than the gospel of grace. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. What? He says, I commit you to God's word. The word of His grace. That means God's. He, so God's word. In other words, He's saying, I commit you to the message from God. About His grace in Jesus Christ. Knowing that. Never tiring of it. Oh, I love the way Piper puts it. Don't tire of old truth. The newest book in here is almost 2,000 years old. The newest. Don't tire. Lead the sheep to know the truth. And that's the ultimate protection from error. The word of God's grace, as Paul has already told them, in his mind, he said, it, he said the same thing in different words. Ongoingly for three years, I did not fail to teach you everything there is to be taught. From Genesis through all the goods that Jesus gave to me and Peter and the others. Now, of course, we, have, we would add all their books. We would add even the book of Revelation numbers of years later. He says, I did not fail to teach you the whole counsel of God. That's the word of grace. The, you can say the gospel in a nutshell, and then you can say, let's go full-blown with the gospel, which Paul would do if he's got enough time. Always he's going to do. 
which for Paul, he knows it begins right there in the book of Genesis, right after the fall where God promises to crush the head of the serpent. And look how he goes and grabs this sinner, this man, this pagan named Abraham, and he makes him a promise and a promise to bless not only his descendants, but all the descendants or nations or human beings of the whole planet. And then it unfolds and yeah, he comes in and he gives his law and Paul will have lots of reasons why he gave the law. But then after that, there's a man named Jesse who has a bunch of boys and there's one of those boys named David and it is through that son, that King David's son, who will come. And Paul proclaims, you see the scripture, it's been written, and the gospel is Jesus of Nazareth three decades ago is the promised Messiah who died on a cross and fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system by becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that price that Jesus paid is applied to every and any person who will believe in Him. And He makes it clear. Those persons are saved by Christ alone. Through that grace that is given to them alone. Through inside of them, their faith in the Gospel alone. Totally separated and apart from and never added to it their own merit, their own meritorious works. That's his whole counsel in a nutshell. Okay, I'm about ready to close. But see, I'm going to bring it back to the context. Because throughout centuries, we have different contexts. In, in, in the 300s, that's is when the, the term the Trinity came about. Needed to. We know the truth. We've never taught that. Why is Arius and some of his buddies saying stuff like that? This is what happens. Because they know that he's saying it clearly. This needs to be dealt with. And then the next century, start talking about Christ in a particular... No. Okay, yeah, we haven't spelled it out in doctrinal language like that throughout the... But you know what? We smell a rat when there's a dead rat. And they deal with it. Okay. Well, throughout Paul's ministry... There's one major, he's got lots of battles, but one major theological battle that he calls these men who profess to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. Wolves. Throughout his entire ministry and in all of his churches were this group of professing Jewish Christians we call the Judaizers, whose doctrine didn't deny the resurrection. It didn't deny that Christ was Messiah. It denied that one can be saved by faith alone. Apart from them, then adding to that faith meritorious works, things that they have to do or they can't be saved. And a form of that doctrine is at the core of the denomination that I was raised up in. It's always here. The attempt 
to teach that a person can be justified and sanctified by their own effort and their own merit is an ongoing error that is always creeping in to the church through wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul's plea to these elders and to the elders throughout the centuries is to understand the gospel. Understand the whole counsel of God. Understand the gospel comes in a context of all of Scripture and it centers on these central realities of who Jesus Christ is and what He did and how a person can be saved by Him. And it is only, only that word of grace that saves and sanctifies. And so Paul ends his speech with these words to them. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this gospel of grace. The beginning and the end. The initial faith and the persevering faith is all a gift of your grace. Father, may we, your people, taste taste these truths even again this morning by the mercy of your spirit that they be sweet 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 to our souls that as sinners being saved day by day we know you began this good work you brought me to Christ you will complete In your arms, our Savior, we rest. Amen.